0: you love Jesus, say amen. I love that word this morning. What an amazing thought that we can live out of this reality that we're no longer spiritually dead, but we're alive in Christ right now with the hope of what it means that when we see him, we will be more alive than we've ever been before. When we see him, the Bible says, we'll be like him for we shall see him as he is. This mortal will put on immortality. This corruptible will put on incorruption. We'll be just like him. Come on, somebody. I'm excited about that. We've come alive, but that's just the down payment. That's just the earnest of our inheritance. Are you glad to be here today? Say amen. As you're seated, give this praise team a hand, if you would, please. So excited to see Wesley Grafton on the platform today in her Bonnie Raitt stance. Got her her picking on. Praising God and looking pretty at the same time. (laughs) Welcome today to Victory. My name is Michael. I'm the lead pastor here at Victory Church. We're excited to have you. A lot of really wonderful churches in West Memphis Marion, and we're thrilled that you've come to be with us. Hope you make yourselves at home. If you have any area of need, look for people in a service shirt. Most of them are red. You might see a black one or two once in a while, but uh, most of them, I think, through the summer are the red service shirts with the white letters down the right side that say SERVE so we're thrilled to have you today. Before I jump into the message I want to give you a quick update on our new building. Um, Wednesday a week ago Jerome Offord and I met with Flintco. Flintco is our construction management company. Uh, We chose not to do a general contractor bid situation. Uh, Most everything that's being built especially anything the government has anything to do with and a lot of private enterprise are building with construction management because we can actually go through line by line and very much have a distinct uh, control over costs. Our first building last year came in $2 million over budget. We engineered it, value engineered it down probably within, oh, maybe three-quarters of a million toward our budget and just couldn't get there, and so we went back to the drawing board. I lost my wife in the process, (coughs) and it took till February to kind of get back on my feet and get the balls rolling again. We had to go all the way back to the drawing board to square one and basically carve out about 4,000 and some change in square feet and uh, reconfigure it all so that we made sure that what we lost, it wasn't something that we really had to have. It was corridors and storage basically behind the platform. And um, classroom sanctuary was the exact same size. Most of the classrooms were uh, in the new building that we've, the second new building are the same size, a couple of them are a little bit bigger, a couple of them are a little bit smaller. So um, they did an amazing job putting that together, finished it up, I think, like in June, late June. It led it out to subs and then crunched those numbers and came back. And we met Wednesday a week ago, and we were about $700,000 over budget. In the meeting, we value engineered that down a half a million. So we are right now at 3.124977, might as well say 3125. And so we're trying to get it under 100. I mean, so trying to get—I'm sorry—trying to pull down another hundred, get it under three million, is our goal. So we threw some things on the table that said that we could do without. What we've been doing basically is just pulling out stuff that won't hinder, that we'll be able to add back in later. For example, they had all the rooms uh, outfitted with dimmer switches and occupancy sensors and all these kinds of things. And I said, "Well, I want all that in the sanctuary. We need to have dimmers from the get-go, day one, in the sanctuary. But we don't have to have dimmers in all these classrooms. I mean, kids don't need dimmers. Maybe, maybe the big classroom might have it, but uh, we just don't need all that. If we want to add it later, we can. And pulling that one item out, you know, alleviated thirty-eight thousand dollars. And occupancy sensors. The state requires now in any public building." that you have an occupancy sensor in the room basically that says that when you walk in the room the lights come on automatically and when the room clears within about three minutes the lights go off so you don't waste energy. So we're looking to see if we can't leave those out right now and then add them in within the first year that we're when you occupy the building. So when you do this guys, I know some of you are just going what is taking so crazy long here? We have a meeting like that and they don't do the research that afternoon and call me back the next morning and go hey we got your price they got to get all their stuff together, and then they go and they send it over to the engineers. The engineers have to check with the manufacturers, and it just takes a while to do this stuff. So we just want to bear with us. It'll be just a little bit longer. We're this close. (coughs) The bank is sitting on go. We're approved. They're waiting on us, and I said, yeah, well, I'm waiting on the architects and the engineers and all these subs. And so what what we're looking to do is as soon as we get a message this week probably from them and meet again, and we can get that right at about the $3 million mark, then we'll be having a... They will give us what's called in construction management a GMP, which is the Guaranteed Maximum Price, which means if we don't go in and do any change orders, they have to build it for that price, and if it costs more, they have to eat that cost. So that's why we're using a construction management company, because we've got that guarantee. So that's where we are. We should be able to hear what we can do, and this is the option to eliminate that last $125,000 we will like leave the whole office complex just shelled out which means there's nothing there, uh, just concrete and, and look up to see the roof. It won't be wired, it won't have HVAC, we would go in after we occupy the building and, and shell that out, I mean we would build it in. Okay, so we're looking to see how we can eliminate about $125,000 and get it around or even under three million. So that's one of our options, and uh, those those things are on the table. They're supposed to get back to us and tell us what we can save if we do that because um, we, we can put a couple people in the kitchen to meet in the office temporarily until we get the office complex fixed, and we can always do that as a congregation. We've got every imaginable trade right here in the church. We have a couple work days and knock that thing out and then be able to save that much on our loan. So you guys, everybody clear with what we're doing, where we are? We're trying to not borrow any more money than we have to. Somebody say praise God. And so there's wisdom in that, and uh, it just takes a little while. Be patient. And so we're trusting, believing God for His best and His wisdom, faith to see this thing built and uh, filled for the glory of God. Somebody say amen. amen. All right. I'm excited today to finish up this series called Fulfilled. Today is the fourth installment In the series, Fulfilled, Pastor Jeremy began it three Sundays back, talked about the general calling of the believer. I came in the second Sunday, we sort of took all that and put it down into a funnel and began to speak about the specific or the special calling that's unique to each individual believer. Uh, I believe our one thing from that week was that we share a common sameness in the family of God, but we also hold a common uniqueness in the plan of God. Everybody in here who's a believer is part of the larger family. There, there is more that we are alike than there is that we're different. But there are some very specific things that we are unique in and we're different. And those unique issues hold the answer to the question, what am I called to do? What is my purpose? We all are generally called to belong to the family of God, to know Jesus as our personal Savior and Lord, to be disciple makers. We're all called to holiness And to walk in righteousness with the Lord. All those things are called on every believer. But then there are unique things that we step into when we can begin to ask some questions. This is free on the website www.victorywired.com I can't go back and do any more review than that, but that's there and available to you. Last Sunday we came in and talked about once we've answered those questions, we need to be empowered and filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit. We need to be empowered. We need to put on, the Bible says, tarry in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. Enduo is the Greek word which means to put on garments. I took this shirt off of the hanger, off of the rack in my closet, and I put my, slipped my arm through it, and I, I enduoed this shirt. I put it on as a garment. And so Jesus was saying, put on the Holy Spirit like a garment. Wear it that close to you. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 14, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. That word for son, weos, means they full-grown, mature, ready to take responsibility, son of God. Not just a little baby. We thank God for babies. Babies are potentially full-grown adults in a kind of a seed form. But we want to grow them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord so that when it's time for us to step into our calling, We have experience and responsibility and anointing and appointing. And we can do what God has called us to do through Christ. Somebody say amen. Amen. So this morning we jump in to point number four or uh, message number four. And I want to talk to you for a few minutes today about living out of your passion. Living out of your passion. And I'll explain that in just a moment. That's the title of the message this morning. And I want to get our series text from Colossians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul is writing as he closes the letter to Colossae, and this is what he says. Find a screen and read it out loud with me, please. Here we go. See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Very simply, you got something, you got a call in your life, you have a destiny. God is saying to you, make sure you find out what that is and you walk in it. That great Mark Twain quote is the two most important days in a person's life are the day he is born and the day he finds out why. Okay? Uh, so the, the message text this morning is found in Second Timothy. He was a son in the Lord, a spiritual son to the Apostle Paul. Paul is writing to him in what is called the pastoral epistles. Pastoral epistles, he's writing to people like Philemon and Titus and Timothy. And these are specifically written to people, okay? And so in uh, Timothy, 2 Timothy 1, we got two verses. Read it out loud with me, please. Here we go. For this reason, I remind you to what? Fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. In other words, there's a fire that got in you that was an impartation by the Spirit. And I'm telling you, you need to keep that thing, whip that thing up. Fan it into a big flame, a big flaming inferno in your life. And verse 7 sort of puts the icing on the cake. Here we go. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Let's pray this morning. Father, we are amazed at your goodness. We're reminded of a simple truth that sometimes we forget and the circumstances of our life tends to obscure. That is, that you are a good, good Father. That's who you are. And that we are loved by you. That's who we are. We thank you for that. We, we are very aware of our need and our brokenness. Lord, thank you that we know that apart from you we are nothing. But God, we also are grateful to acknowledge that we're no longer apart from you. That in Christ we can do all things because you strengthen us. We're careful today to ask you to, to be upon each of our hearts. God, I speak and I ask you in Jesus' name to be in my thoughts and in my mouth, that you would animate, Lord, the thoughts and the words that I speak and project and proclaim. I ask you for clarity. I ask you for understanding in the hearts and minds of the people. Holy Spirit, be our hearts and our eyes and our ears, our perception, our understanding so that we can hear correctly. Lord, we can respond because we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. It's in the matchless name of Jesus that we pray and all of God's people said, Amen. <clears throat> I, uh, I want to take a moment this morning before I, I jump into this squarely and uh, remind you specifically what we're talking about when we're dealing with passion. And as we get ready to do that, I always have one thing. Everybody say one thing. There's one thing that's going to punctuate the thoughts of this message as we open the Word of God. I'm going to grab the whole context of all of Philippians chapter 3 in this idea of living out of my passion of you living out of what God has uniquely built you into to be and to do and the one thing that I want to bring to your mind and to help you remember I do not remember where I heard this it's probably been 30 years ago A very powerful prophetic teacher of the word of God said this in passing and it really just impacted me. It lodged in my spirit and it was like um, hanging a key on a nail. It's like hanging a key ring on a nail. It's in in a solid place in my heart. When I heard him say, read it with me, God deals with you based on your what? Your destiny and not your history. Read it again. God deals with you on your destiny and not on your history. That's about 70%. Let me Give me an A. Come on, let's get 100%. Here we go. God deals with you based on your destiny and not your history. Destiny is out in front of us. History is behind us. God deals with you based on where He is headed with you, the teleos, the complete, finished, perfect work of the Lord in your life, and not where you've been. Not a mistake, not a bad choice, not a wrong decision. History, the past, is no longer a ball and chain around your ankle limiting you and defining who you are. God deals with you not on your history but on your destiny and that is a freeing concept. If I didn't do anything but just shout that three more times and say amen and let's go home, that's a message right there worth your pondering and your meditating this week In your personal prayer time, knowing that God is dealing with you based on what's out in front of you. And God is not spiritually blackmailing anybody in this room holding your past over your head. As a matter of fact, He has totally forgotten about it. He has totally removed it from you as far as the sunrise is from the sunset. The psalmist David said it this way, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. And he's removed them. Dr. Billy Graham said God has thrown your sins into the sea of forgetfulness and he's posted a sign that says no fishing. And if God doesn't remember it, why do you want to dredge up the past? And let your history be the defining point in your life. Everybody in this room has something that they wish nobody else in the room would ever find out about We've all made bad decisions, we've all made choices that thank God Our lives have not been published in black ink on white paper in the scripture And thank God we haven't been followed around by a camera all the days of our lives Because there are just some things that we've all probably said and done at times That we don't want anybody else in the room to know about I mean, you know, Jesus is a big enough Savior to, to rescue you from all of that. And to call you into something new that's way beyond and way bigger and way better than any bad decision or wrong move that you've made in your past. The past is the past. I love it. Do you know, let me give you a little quick... Uh, astronomical lesson, an astronomy lesson do you know you can go far enough north on the planet that you will eventually turn and begin to go south and so north and south are limited axes but east and west long before the writer long when David was sitting out there with a bunch of smelly sheep and just worshipping God he was inspired to speak truth that would later be proved scientifically that he didn't have any even clue what he was talking about You can start out going east on the planet and you know east will never meet west. You will always continually be going east. What is that saying? There's an infinite space between you and your sins. God's removed them so far from you that you can't reach them and He's forgotten about them. Come on, you ought to be shouting about that. God deals with you based on your destiny and not on your history. What are your passions? What is this passion that we're going to live out of? First of all, I want to tell you what I'm not talking about. In order to be clear in my communication, I want to tell you what I'm not saying. I'm not talking about the sinful passions of Romans chapter 7 that were ignited by the law, sinful passions of our flesh. I'm not talking about burning passions where Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9, talking to single people, saying it's good to be single, but he said, I'd rather you get married than to burn with lust. Same word there is passion, to burn with passion. So I'm not talking about a physiological desire. I'm not talking about just being hungry for an intimate relationship. I'm talking about a passion that is born of the heart. Let me define passion for you. Two two definitions in the internet dictionaries I googled and said define passion. The first one was strong and barely controllable emotion. And I, I don't believe that we should be people that are only, that are driven by what we feel alone. I think we should be thinking people as well as feeling people. And we have to keep all that in balance. The second definition is the suffering and death of Jesus. Everybody say the passion of Christ. So when we use the word passion, biblically, I'm really referring to something like Jesus had a deep desire and a longing to restore the Father and the world that were separated. And He became the mediator. The Bible says there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 2, 5. I believe the passion the Bible talks about is a a deep desire of the heart. It is where fulfillment that we're preaching about in this series is found. And if we liken it to how passion describes what Jesus did, His suffering and death, then I believe our passion is something that that for which one is willing to lay down his or her life. Are you willing to believe in something so much that you would give all of your nine to fives, really probably more than that if you're going to experience success, those who have worked hard enough to experience real, tangible, material success have rarely known a forty hour work week. They work sun up to sundown, and they work hard rather than hardly working. And they put their trust in God. And that's where we had historically what was called the Puritan work ethic working like it all depended upon them, but praying like it all depended on God. And when you put those two factors together, God's sovereign will and my responsibility and the decision that I make to walk according to His sovereign will, He will move heaven and earth for your sake. Come on, somebody, put your hands together. So the passion I'm talking about living out of is a deep desire of the heart where fulfillment is found. It's that for which I am willing to lay down my life. And I want you to realize that your passion and your purpose are intricately connected. One of my preaching heroes, Bishop T.D. Jakes, said it this way, if you can't figure out your purpose, figure out your passion, for your passion will lead you right into your purpose. And what that means is, is that God has hardwired you to do and enjoy the thing for which he made you, your purpose. Your purpose is your purpose raison d'etre as the French call it your reason for being but then your passion is finding that thing that you express in a day-to-day opportunity to live out that purpose the thing that you love to do that that makes you glad when you do it and you can do it as we're going to read here in just a second and you can do it without Being fatigued. You don't burn out when you're living out of your passion. That thing, you know, that some of you have jobs and you go to the job because the job actually funds what you love to do on your own time. Your passion. Whether it's the golf course or hunting or whatever. Wouldn't it be amazing if you could actually live so much out of your passion that you could turn that passion into a vocation that would actually pay you? This is what I tell young people all the time. Find your passion and throw yourself into it 110% with all of your heart and prosperity will follow your passion. If you'll do it with all of your might, whatever you put your hand to, Ecclesiastes says, do it with all of your might. Great Nelson Mandela, powerful leader who was unjustly prisoned for 27 years battling the the effects of the British and Dutch colonialism had produced what was called apartheid in South Africa. And it was a governmental system of white supremacy. And Mandela stood against it and was imprisoned for 27 years, and God delivered him. He's a true, spirit filled, blood bought believer in Jesus Christ. Spoke in one of my friend's churches in Johannesburg and in Cape Town and gave his testimony how God had carried him through those 27 years until he was delivered and became from the prison to the seat of the prime minister in, in uh, South Africa. Come on, somebody, on, put your hands together. He says this, There's no passion to be found playing small. In settling for a life that is less than you are capable of living, God wants you to live out of large nests and out of largesse, out of a generous spirit of giving. Our 16th president, Abraham Lincoln, said it this way, Every man is proud of what he does well, and no man is proud of what he does not do well. With the former, his heart is in his work, and he will do twice as much of it with less fatigue. The latter performs a little imperfectly, looks at it in disgust, turns from it, and imagines himself exceedingly tired, The little he has done comes to nothing for want of finishing. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Things, tasks that you have to do at work that you despise. There are things that you really enjoy doing and oh man, you could just do it all day long. And the things that you despise, just W-M-O. Everybody say, wearing me out. You know what I'm talking about. And unfortunately, we all have jobs descriptions that don't just define the things we love to do, but it's that cursed line at the bottom that says other duties as assigned that'll kill you. How many of you know what I'm talking about? We all have to do some things we don't like to do so that we can do the things that we enjoy doing. Am I helping somebody this morning? Howard Thurman said it this way Don't ask yourself what the world needs, ask yourself what makes you come alive and then go and do that, because what the world needs is people who have come alive. We sang it this morning, dry bones, call out to the dry bones, come alive. God is looking for a people who have come alive in His Son, in Christ, and they can be a, a living, breathing, fire brand, a beacon to the world that is called to, to come alive in Christ. Somebody say amen. amen. Last one, I'm going to get into the meat of the message. This is an unknown proverb, I don't know who said it, Our passions are the winds that propel our vessel, like a ship. Our reason is the pilot that steers her. Without winds, the vessel would not move, and without a pilot, she would be lost. So I need passion, emotion, excitement that propels me, like the wind that moves a ship with a sail. But I also need to have reason as a pilot. Everybody say purpose when I recognize my purpose, when I get my purpose and my passion together, it's amazing how God can move the ship and we can transport things. We can carry an idea to completion. We can see success come based upon our hard work. Come on, somebody, say amen. I have three points this morning I want to bring to you, and I want to move to the book of Philippians. Paul is writing to the Philippian church. They are an outpost of the Roman Empire in the Macedonian region which is north of modern-day Turkey Asia Minor and Philippi is an outpost of the Roman Empire Roman Empire does not extend out that far where they are but they have an outpost out there and what that literally means is the people that are living in the protected city of Philippi though they're living in a region that is foreign to the Roman Empire they are actually Roman citizens and enjoy the benefits of being Roman citizens. They can appeal to a higher law. They can call for the protection and the strength and the might that backs the words the Holy Roman Empire. And so Philippi is a church that Paul has had a direct hand in and planting. As a matter of fact, it's in in the story of the Acts, the 16th chapter, there was a woman who was the first convert of the Philippian church. She was a businesswoman by the name of Lydia, and she's a seller of purple. That means she's kind of a roving Hancock's Fabrics. I don't, either, I don't know if they're Hancock's even still in business. They used to be around the corner here at the mall, and, and um, basically ladies could go in there and pick fabric and get a dress pattern or a shirt or blouse or whatever and, and make something themselves. Well Lydia is selling garments, she's selling fabric that people make garments out of and she's a businesswoman. She's she's very astute but yet she has a heart that the Bible says the Lord opened to the message of Paul and he's preaching and she converts, she's, she's, she's transformed by the gospel that Paul is preaching and the Philippian church begins... And so Paul is writing to a group of people that are an outpost of the Roman Empire. That's going to be important in a few moments when we come and approach the latter end of chapter 3 of the book of Philippians. Three points this morning. Number one is recognition. Everybody say recognize. This comes from the Hebrew word gnosis, which means knowledge. We think of the French word reconnaissance. Those who are sent into beyond the geography of a battle zone into foreign enemy territory to spy out. A reconnaissance group is sent in for the purpose of basically surveying the land. The, the two spies under Joshua's leadership were on a reconnaissance mission into Jericho when they spent the night in the house of a harlot named Rahab. And then God saved her and redeemed her life so much that he took her and made her become part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. How many of you know the message I'm preaching to you is so real that God can take a hoe from Jericho and He can put her in the lineage of Jesus? And if that didn't wake you up, I don't know what else to do. (laughs) Did He just say that in church? Yes, He did. (laughs) Remember, what is our one thing? Say it with me. God deals with a person based on her destiny And not her history. God didn't care if she'd been a hoe. He said, guess what? I'm going to redeem you, honey, and I'm going to turn your life around so good. You're going to be the great, 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 great grandmother of the Savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. I didn't have that in the first message this morning. That just hit me right there. Everybody say recognize. You got to recognize that God is good and you have to recognize who you are. And before we come to him, that means we recognize our brokenness. Whether we have been weaned from the teat of religious legalism sitting on a church pew, because you can be dead in sin and been, you, you could have been born in the church pew and raised on it your whole life. I slept under them when I was a little kid on a pallet and they'd just be having church till 11 o'clock at night. And we were Pentecostal so we just didn't know when to quit. <laughs> i wake up and i go, is this still going? <laughs> I love my heritage. Don't get me wrong. I grew up and later got on one of the benches and played piano organ. And I was part of the party that kept it all going all night long. And I, I love that. I love the presence of God. At the same time around here, we, we, we don't want to wear you out. So we try to, you know, keep all that in mind. We want to be led by the Spirit. Somebody say amen. amen. Recognize. Recognize who God is. Recognize who you are. Let's see how Paul did it in Philippians 3. Now, I, this is a lot of scripture. It's word-rich, but I'm gonna make comments. We're gonna move quickly. Here we go. Verse one. Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, what? Everybody say, rejoice. Rejoice basically means you have a choice. You choose. You choose joy. It means you have joy and you, re, you rewind it. You do it again. You you revisit it. Anytime you re-something, it means it's a repetitious thing. You rejoice. And basically, the Greek word for rejoice means to brighten up. Look at your neighbor and say, brighten up. Some of you need to know about that. Brighten up. My goodness. And you know, so many times, church is just so serious and dead. I just want to say, most folk in church can't brighten up because they don't know how to lighten up. Everybody look at your neighbor and say, lighten up. Come on. Come on. I remember growing up, folks would say, oh, man, that was a heavy word today. Yeah, and we went out like this. We were just... Feel like we've been beat up. Now we want to deliver the word. And if it's heavy, we want to make it heavy. But we also don't want to just step away from it because there's a lightning and a brightening effect to it that can lift us up and give us strength to be able to do what he's called us to do. Somebody say amen. Rejoice. I never get tired of telling you these things and I do it to safeguard your faith. Verse 2. Watch out for those dogs. Now he's talking about some preachers now. Okay. We'll leave out the network they're preaching on on television. He says, watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. So he's contending with some folks who are adding to the gospel of salvation by grace through faith. They're telling people that if you're really going to be saved, you're going to have to be circumcised. Now, I don't want to be offensive. This is just Bible. The the old covenant mark, or the seal of the covenant, the mark is in the male flesh circumcision of the foreskin it touches the male reproductive member and so this is what Paul is saying he says those of these people that are flesh mutilators matter of fact he gets so aggravated in them in Colossians he said I just wish they would cut it off themselves If you guys would read your Bibles, you'd realize what I'm talking about is not just some crazy far-fetched idea. Paul hated this stuff. And he says, these are mutilators. Don't pay any attention to them. Verse 3, this is what he says. He says, for we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. He took an old covenant covenant. Physical rite or ceremonial practice bumps it into the New Testament now in Christ and he says this is a spiritual thing. He says it's no longer circumcision of the flesh but it's circumcision of the heart which is what God was after in the first place. Because that's really where we reproduce the image of God. It's not out of the male reproductive organ but it's out of our heart. Out of the heart flow the issues of life. Come on somebody. And until God circumcises your heart... He takes away the stony heart and gives you a heart of flesh, Ezekiel says. He gives you a new heart, Jeremiah 31 says. In the New Covenant, we begin to recognize and walk and we are motivated and animated now by a whole new spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And he says, we rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. Everybody say done. So it's past tense. He says, we put no confidence in human effort. Though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. He says, indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. Paul says, don't come show me your spiritual pedigree. I can beat you. Nah, 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 nah. And he says, look, I don't have time for that nonsense. He says, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew, if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. Now this is the deception of getting so deep into any kind of legalistic system when you can start killing people in the name of your religion and thinking you're doing God a favor, you are messed up and jacked up in some kind of way. If you can strap a bomb to yourself and think that Allah is pleased with it, you are out of your freaking mind. You are demon-possessed. Basically, I'm, I'm going to offend somebody when I say this. Paul was a Jewish terrorist, he was killing Christians. Now if God can take a Jewish terrorist who thinks he's justified by trying to stop the way, capital W, the way this, this sect of believers that are following this Nazarene and he thinks he's doing God a favor and he holds the coats while everybody stones Stephen and God says no I've got something higher I'm going to deal with this man based on his destiny and not based on his history and I decided I've got an appointment with Paul and I've set a time where I'm going to meet with him except he's not expecting me. I'm going to Break open the heavens and step down onto a Damascus road and meet him one day and he's going to realize who I am. Paul the Apostle got up off of his donkey. I just translated the King James. God knocked him off of his donkey and he got up off the ground and he was serving a new master. Come on somebody. His life had begun to be redefined this is what he said he says and as for righteousness I obeyed the law without fault I once thought these things were valuable read it out loud with me but say it here we go but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done Paul had to come to a place of recognition where he could see God for who he was and once he saw God for who he was he saw himself no longer as the proud Pharisee no longer as this one who had all the gold stars of religious manipulation and legalism but he realized that he was completely and totally bankrupt and in desperate need for God and when he humbled himself and laid down his arrogance and pride God transformed him and he began to recognize his life from a whole new place of definition how do I get unstuck? Pastor, you're fired up this morning. You're motivating me, but you don't know what I struggle with this week. You don't know what I wrestle with just to get to church this morning. You don't know what's happening in my marriage. It's on the rocks. Or maybe it's already destroyed and you have no hope for the future. A business maybe that is just on a fledgling shoestring. A dream that may have looked like it's died and you've just about buried it and celebrated it's death, and, and euthanized, not euthanized it. Sometimes you have to euthanize something on its last breath. I was thinking of the word eulogized. You've spoken nice words over a dream that you thought has died and is never coming back. But when you begin to meet the one who has the ability to call dry bones to come alive, Amen. you know that you're not bound by what's happened in the past, but God's dealing with you based on your future. Everybody say your destiny. Come on. Come on, somebody. You know what, but whatever you're struggling with this morning, whether it's chemical, whether it's financial, whether it's relational, we're not going to take time to name all of the various axes of power that draw on us in our lives. You know what yours is. You know what your flavor is. Quit playing. You know what the first step to wholeness is? Breaking denial. And I'm not talking about a river in Egypt either. Denial. Denial is... Failing to acknowledge you have a problem. Houston, God help Houston this morning. I'm thinking of the line in the space movie, Apollo 13. Houston, we have a problem. Until you can say, God, I need you. Until you can stop living independent from him, carrying on in the name and the action and the function of our forbear Adam and Eve, who flipped God off and committed high treason and said, we don't need you as God, we'll be our own God, we'll choose what we want to eat of and how we want to live. They lived independently, arrogantly in the face of God. And when we can kneel, when we can bow our knee and lay down our arrogance and our pride and say, God, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh God, how I need you, Lord. It's amazing how when we acknowledge the need when we break denial when we say God I have a problem I need you to help me fix it this is bigger than I am when I recognize that I may have been born in church and raised in it my whole life but I'm not alive in Christ I'm sitting here dead inside my heart when I can recognize it and say God I need you he will begin to deal with me based on where he's taking me and not where he found me Based on my destiny and not my history. Point number two. Everybody say reference. Once I recognize my condition and my shape that I'm in, then God will give me a new point of reference. A new place from which I can navigate. You know, how many of you have ever been out in the boonies somewhere and you pull over at a little general store that's barely marked and the old fellow in the overalls said... Go down past the Joneses farm to the big rock and turn left at the tree. And you're going, and you go ride 45 minutes and you round back up at the store again go, can you give me those instructions one more time, please? And it's because you don't know where you are and you need a point of, everybody say it, reference. reference. You have something to refer to. And as Paul recognizes who he is and his condition, and all of that from the past is worthless, He now has a new point of reference let's look about four verses here verse verse 8 yes everything else is worthless when everybody say it when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for his sake I have discarded everything else counting it all as garbage King James says dung counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with Him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law rather I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with Himself depends on what? Everybody say it. Faith. Faith. Verse 10. Here we go. Read it out loud with me. This verse. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised Him from the dead. I want to suffer with Him sharing in His death so that one way or the other I will experience the resurrection from the dead. Everything that Paul had accomplished in the past, as a matter of fact, even after having the deaths of Christians on his account, at one point later in the New Testament, he writes and he says, I have wronged no man. How can a man who killed others in the name of his Jewish religion now be in such a place of personal innocence and holiness and acceptance by God that he could say, I have wronged no man. It's because he had a new point of reference. Everything that was B.C. before Christ, he said, God is wiped away. Because God doesn't deal with me based on my history. He deals with me based on my destiny. Somebody say amen. Amen. Those three days become the hinge point of the history of the universe. God didn't send Jesus at the beginning of creation to save the world that was plunged into sin immediately as soon as Adam sinned. And He didn't choose to send Jesus at the very end to die on the cross and save us. He chose to come in the midpoint of history. As a matter of fact, the history of the world hinges on that one moment when Jesus is born. And everything before Him, historians relate to B.C., before Christ. And everything after Him, Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord, is after his birth. And so from that moment on, everything about his life is the hinge point of history. And and humanistic historians have attempted to remove him as the standard or the position of influence. And they've given us now CE, the common era, and BCE, before the common era. And the only issue is you have to ask the question, what makes the common era common? And it's the man named Jesus Christ. You can't get away from him everything that was going on inside the world, everything, every, the fissures and the cracks began to move through the foundation of the Holy Roman Empire and Jesus came and shook the world and His motley crew of a bunch of little crazy, uneducated, unpolished fishermen and, and folk that are just gathered from the countryside, twelve of them gathered together and not educated but they had the ability just because they had been with Jesus to shake the world. And their influence and their, 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 their ministries are still touching the world 2,000 years later. Somebody say amen. How can I find a new beginning in the middle? I'm in the middle of my mess. How can I find a fresh start in the junk that I'm dealing with right now, Pastor? Well, that's what Jesus intended. He came in the middle of history to give us a redefined point of reference. Three days from the cross to the tomb the death, the burial, the resurrection He becomes the substitutionary sacrifice the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world breathes His last, says it is finished goes into the grave, buried comes up the third day resurrected in new, new life and authority because He buries your sins and He gets up without them He breaks the penalty of your sin on the cross and He breaks the power of your sin when He rises up out of the grave no longer having an accusing record because it was nailed to the cross your accusers are dead now except that stinking Satan who, who, who doesn't have any teeth, but he's still got a mouth, he's got a tongue, and he can <laughs> lie. Somebody says, how you know when Satan's lying? Honey, when his lips are moving, that's he is the father of lies. He can't tell the truth. Don't shout me down. <laughs> Cross in the tomb, three days. Those are the bookends of Christianity. Everything that is your life is tied up in those three days. It becomes a new point of reference power of his resurrection. I want to know him sharing in his sufferings in his death, his crucifixion I want that applied to my life. I want this to become a new point of reference so that now from this point on I'm no longer governed from past to present but I can be- begin to see the world and life and reality in a whole new kind of way. Even grace takes on a whole new meaning In the Bible about South we've been taught only one side of a two-sided definition of grace We've all been taught that grace is God's unmerited favor and that is just so true. I'm so thankful for that. That's the starting point. That's that's your first taste of grace. grace. Grace is like a blanket that God throws over you and covers and forgives you of your sins and removes them as far as the east is from the west. But grace is more than just God's unmerited favor. Thank God we got that from Ephesians 2 8 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Everybody say, not of works. That's the unmerited favor part. You didn't work for it, you didn't earn it, you don't deserve it. I don't, you don't. It's unmerited favor. And yes, we've been taught all of our lives the unmerited favor, the grace of God is G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. That's His unmerited favor. But there's a whole different side to grace that is beyond that, that we fail to see. We don't preach about it enough in the Bible Belt. And everybody can answer, every, every, every good kid who's had a been to a Baptist Sunday school somewhere can tell you that grace is unmerited favor. But I want to tell you the other, the second definition to grace, the enlarged idea of what grace is about is operational power. Everybody say power. Okay. Listen to this in 1 Corinthians 15.10. The apostle Paul writes and he says, but by the grace of God, grace, he says, by the grace of God I am what I am and his grace to me was not without effect, influence, impact, No, I worked harder than all of the other apostles. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So grace has an influence. It's not just a blanket that covers, but it's a power-producing dynamo on the inside of you, not just a blanket on the outside separating you so God doesn't see your sins, but it's a dynamo on the inside of you producing power for you to walk in the calling God has over your life. Listen to the New Living Translation. Same verse, Paul says, But whatever I am now, it is all because God poured out His special favor. Everybody say grace. grace. His special favor on me, and not without results. You can't meet grace and not be changed, saints. That's right. For I have worked harder than any of the other apostles, yet it was not I, but God who was working through me by His grace. So yes, 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 grace is unmerited favor. But don't stop there. Grace is also operational power that you can say as you grow in Christ by grace I am what I am. I'm not what I used to be because God doesn't even look at my history anymore. But He's calling me into the future based on my destiny and His grace is drawing me into the calling of God on my life. Come on somebody. And I'm living out of that passion. God deals with you based on your destiny and not your history. Last point. Are you getting anything out of this? reorientation I recognize who God is, who I am I have a new point of reference it's no longer my past or my history but it's now the cross I have a new fresh start a starting point I get a new beginning in the middle a new beginning came in the middle of history a new beginning comes in the middle of your mess God gives you a fresh start when you bow your knee at the cross Let's get the rest of the chapter quickly. Everybody say reorientation. Now orientation is the first couple of days of college as a freshman. You attend orientation because they're trying to get you acclimated to living away from home, to being responsible with your money, to making good decisions and going to class, to handling all the temptations of the parties and the things that are there and at least doing it responsibly. And so orientation is all about helping you to become a successful college student. It comes from the word Orient. Oriental, which on many old world maps we would see north and south and west, and we would see Orient would be the east. The Oriental idea is this this concept of being able to determine where I'm headed because I understand on the map where I am right now. How many of you have been to the mall and seen a diagram of the map of the mall? And you see the mall has several sections to it and there are multiple floors to it. And you're, you're trying to get to, oh, whatever, let's just say Macy's. And, and you find Macy's on, on the mall. But how many of you know there's something else that's very important on that map of that mall that you need to get a good look at? What, is, what, is, what am I talking about? You are here. Because if you don't know where you are, you can't navigate to where you want to go orientation is recognizing where you are but knowing that God ain't finished. He's taking you someplace different. And He's not doing it based on your history. He's doing it based on your destiny. He's not going to hold a bad decision or a wrong choice or a mistake over your head but He's saying, listen, I'm dealing with you out of your future because I know what I want to produce in you and I'm going to have victory says the Lord thy God according to the word. Man, I love it. I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection, but I watch, Say it. I press on. I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. I love it. This is the Greek word, a derivative of lombano or katalombano, and it means seize the moment. It's kind of the curpe diem Latin of seize the day, seize the moment. And he says, I'm, I'm reaching out to grab hold of What God grabbed a hold of me for in the first place. I'm reaching out to possess what God possessed me for. He says, and this is how I'm going to do it. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this. See, I love how Paul preached. He had one thing too. Everybody say one thing. Now, let's read Paul's one thing in this message. Everybody get it. What are we doing? Say it. Here we go. Forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. Well isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? God basically is preaching my message. Paul is preaching my message. God doesn't deal with you based on your history but based on your destiny. Forget what the past was. Now everybody in here wants to forget your mistakes but it's not just the bad spots. It's all that stuff you were able to accomplish in your own strength when you just gloried and thought your flesh didn't stink. You remember that day when you won that prize? When you won the race in school? When you beat everybody else on the grade? When you won the competition? Oh, you just thought you were something else. What was it somebody said to me recently? I was dressed up more than normally. Am, and told me I looked like sexy socks on a rooster. I said, what? I said, I never heard that one. I won't tell you who said it because he's sitting on the front row over here. a little dressed up more than I normally am you know if if folk would get used to seeing me in jeans and an untucked shirt and I just said well I have style that you know not of (laughs) I don't know what that has to do with my message but it (laughs) it came right across there anyway forgetting you know even when you do something in your own strength successfully basically Paul's saying forget all of it get up and move on quit being dominated and defined by what happened yesterday or last month, or ten years ago, or what your daddy did to you or your mama didn't do. Get up, take some personal responsibility, and realize 40 years ago what happened to you can't be alone what's making you who you are today. You've made some decisions since then. Recognize yourself. Get you a new point of reference. Come on, help me preach a little bit. I'm sorry, my my sexy socks on the rooster got all (laughs) tangled up. My notes just disappeared. The the Holy Spirit is scolding me for letting Dennis the Menace get involved in this message today. (laughs) Forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. Verse 14, there it is again. Come on, are you getting anything out of this? You're having a good time anyway, whether you are or not. I press on to reach what? To reach the end of the race, the King James says, for the mark, I press toward the mark of the prize for the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. It's something in my view. I can see it. It's something that I can see. And and he says, and I receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. Now hold that thought. Everybody say, I can see it. We're going to come back to that. Let all who are spiritually mature agree on these things. If you disagree on some point, I believe God will make it plain to you. But we must hold on to the progress we have already made. Verse 17, dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. I don't have time for preachers that get up all the time and in a false humility say, don't follow me, follow Jesus. I mean, that's not what Paul said. Paul said, follow me for I follow Christ. And if you you don't have a minister who's at least got enough ducks in a row to say, come on, do what I'm doing, follow me, let's pray, let's fast, let's seek the Lord, let's, let's have a positive confession, let's determine to be positive. Come on, folks, being positive in negative circumstances is not naive, it's being a leader. Come on, somebody. I've had enough life experience the last year is one that's just taught me a whole lot. It's not raw, blind positivity just for the sake of being positive, but it's an informed positive. It's an informed faith. I Paul Paul said it this way he said he, he, he didn't say I know what I believe he said I know in whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he's able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day he says for I've told you often before and I say it again with tears in my eyes that there are many Whose conduct shows they're really enemies of the cross of Christ. They're headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shame, shameful things and they think only about this life here on earth. They're stuck in the present, usually defined by the past. He says, But we are citizens of heaven. I love this. He's playing off the fact that Philippi was a Roman colony governed by a law from another place, nowhere near Rome but they were citizens of Rome while they were living in Macedonia in the Philippian city. And he's saying this to you. You're here on planet earth, but you're a citizen from a place that has a higher law. You're citizens of heaven, and there are blessings and privileges and responsibilities that you have as a citizen of heaven, and you have an appeal to a higher ruler. It's not Caesar. It's not the president. It's not a committee. It's not a crew or a team, but it's the God who sits on the throne of the universe. Come on. We're citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. And we're eagerly waiting for Him to return as our Savior. Verse 21, and I'm finished. I love this. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like His own. Using the what? Say it. The same power with which He will bring everything under His control. Now, I want to say this to you this morning. There's something about that hope that, that motivates me. I'm not living out of a past-present mentality. But I've got a new reference now. And God has moved me into where I look to my future and I'm living future-present instead of past-present. My history no longer defines me, but what I'm becoming, my, de- my destiny is what defines me now. Amen. Linear thinking is established as a Judeo-Christian worldview. We have a creation point. We have a progression all the way to a point of consummation when history ends and Christ is Lord over all and He hands the kingdom to the Father. And we have millennia. We have centuries. We have generation after generation that are existing from the point of creation all the way to consummation. I'm not in any way doing away with linear thinking because circular thinking is a curse. Circular thinking is far Eastern thinking where We're reincarnated from one form of existence to another. In the Bible, if you're making progress, you're seeing new ground you've never seen before. You know, he says in Joshua, he says, I'm going to take you away you've never seen before because they had a generation that wandered for 40 years, sometimes circling the same mountain five or six times. If you're looking around and the geography and your spiritual life is looking familiar to you, then it means there's judgment and God has said, you know what? I love you, you're my child, but you're going to go through the seventh grade for the eighth time if you need to until you can get these lessons in your spirit. Because God doesn't socially promote any of us. Well, he's big, he's six foot three inches tall, he's, 14. he's, you know, he's, he's 42 years old and he's still in the seventh grade. You know, God doesn't just advance you and give you a promotion just because you're big for your age. Come on, come on, somebody. He'll let you circle the mountain again. He'll love you and He'll walk with you. Oh, I remember the old saint that said, you know, well, many are the afflictions of the righteous. And they'd just say it and stop. And I'd go, don't quit there. There's another part of that verse. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. How many? Of you might, no matter what you're going through, if you just get Jesus in the boat with you, how many know you're going to be okay? Same power. I'm telling you that what God wants to do is shift you from a past present kind of thinking to where you begin to think and live your life out of a future present mentality. You know that God's working on you and He's going to do something amazing in your life because it's out ahead of you, and your best days are in front of you. I don't care if you're 95 years old sitting in this room this morning. Your your best days are still ahead of you. Don't get in a spirit of nostalgia that only looks to the past and talking about the good old days. Because guess what? If you know Jesus, your best days are still ahead of you. Because you're going to see Him and you're going to dwell with Him in heavenly places. Hallelujah. It's when people lose an awareness of the sense of a future purpose that they begin to die on the inside. God doesn't want us to live bound to the past but he wants us to live with an awareness a future present mentality you're going to walk out of this room in just about 10 minutes you're going to get in your cars, you're going to crank them up and you're going to look ahead through a windshield you're going to back out of your parking space and you're going to head to lunch or you're going to head home, you're going to drive with purpose because you have a destination that you're headed toward in the middle of that windshield, you've got a little thing that's stuck up there on that windshield, little bitty small. In comparison to the windshield, you've got a little thing up there that's called a what? Rearview mirror. Have you ever thought about what do you do in the rearview mirror? You look to see what? What's behind you. But have you ever considered the proportions of the windshield to the rear-view mirror? You can't get anywhere looking all the time in the rear-view mirror. I, I, I think you need to be aware of what's behind you. But you don't need to let the what's behind you define you because that's not the direction you're headed unless you're looking in that rearview mirror and trying to back all the way to your lunch today. That's dangerous. You're trying to back up to the good old days of a, of a lunch you, you really loved and hope you can get back to that. No, if you're going to go back anywhere, let's think about Marty McFly and go back to the future. Get in the future, present mentality. Hallelujah. hey that's, that's fine you can call me doc if you want to I'll be the crazy wiry haired scientist that's building you the Lamborghini that you can get into and head to your destiny And God I'll look crazy if you want me to get in that car and you spend 95% of your time looking to what's ahead and not dwelling on what's behind you there was one French military strategist who said this The most powerful weapon on earth is the human soul on fire. John Wesley, 1737 through 41, first great awakening preacher, Englishman, founder of Methodism, said, Set yourself on fire and the world will come to watch you burn. He's talking about being on fire for Jesus, having a passion where you're living out of your passion. Your destiny is wrapped up in your future. You're to look forward in Christ and faith it into the now. From the future to the present. That's why he taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it what? As it is in heaven. Reach into the future and grab it by faith and bring it into the now. Bring it into your earth. Bring the promise of God. Trust in by faith take hold of that operational power of grace one last quote and I want to pray with you one of my poet heroes Dr. Maya Angelou she says my mission in life is not merely to survive but to thrive and to do so with some passion and some compassion and some humor and some style And so today I would say to you in these moments, God's design and his desire for you is to not just survive and get by, but to thrive and to come alive where the dead bones have held you back, the dead bones of your past, and come alive in Jesus and live life with some passion and some compassion and some humor and some style. Bow your hearts with me, please.